This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Hockey News Podcast. It's Matt Larkin here with Ryan Kennedy, as always. And Ryan, normally I would start off the show by maybe asking you a couple questions about the weekend. We've sort of established that as a little bit of banter to start the show. It doesn't feel right to do it this week. There's just too much heaviness in the air, and I think we really need to get right down and start talking about it right off the top. It's been just an absolute, absolutely crazy week in the sport since the last time we did this show. Uh, most prominently, of course, because of the bombshell that Kyle Beach dropped when he came forward as John Doe in the scandal, sexual assault, assault scandal with Brad Aldrich, the video coach of the Chicago Blackhawks, dropped that massive interview with Rick Westhead on TSN. And it's been sort of just a, a parade of, I guess you could call it damage control, whatever you want to call it, from the NHL, from the Winnipeg Jets. There's so much to unpack right now. Mm-hmm. But let's start with the presser from Gary Bettman and Bill Daly that happened this week uh, and the language they used. And I guess I want to start the podcast there by asking you, how did you feel about the NHL stance when it finally offered its input for the first time uh, since Kyle Beach's revelations? And are you satisfied? Do you think that the NHL is showing enough contrition? And just give me any thoughts you have. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was about what I expected. You, You know, I look at the NHL and, and sort of hockey in general, and this is sort of a metaphor you've used before, is, you know, it's like turning around like a cruise liner or a tanker. It's, it's slow and, you know, it's, it's difficult because you, you can tell that they need to pivot, but they're not used to pivoting. And I mean, there's a lot of smart people in that front office, uh, but it's also a lot of people that are you know, trying to negotiate their way and sort of finesse their way through a very serious problem and doing so in a a culture they're not used to, you know, because, you know, frankly, you know, people today are much more attuned to uh, what survivors and victims need than we were used to even sort of 20, 30 years ago. So I think the NHL is doing a lot of catch up. And I think that's what we're seeing right now is, you know, sort of an an old guard that is not used to this kind of scrutiny in this fashion. And, you know, they're they're doing what they always did, but I'm not sure if that's going to wash with the the general public anymore. Yeah, it's funny. Well, it's not funny. It couldn't be less funny. But my reaction to this particular presser, I don't know if I've ever felt this way about the sport in general and about the NHL in particular, and I wrote about it with the headline of the column I wrote last week saying that hockey's lost my trust, our trust. And I just could not digest anything that came out of Gary Bettman's mouth or, or Bill Daly's mouth and take it as anything that was really sincerity. And I'm not saying that even as an insult to them. I'm just saying this is, we know what this is. This is legalese. And that's why there was that gap before they came forward and spoke and everything, every every choice Every choice of language was designed to absolve the NHL of involvement, in my opinion. So it's saying things like, we are sorry for the trauma Kyle endured. Not not we're sorry that the NHL or, or the Chicago Blackhawks put Kyle in this position or you know turned a blind eye, anything like that. We are sorry for the trauma he endured. We are sorry that he had to go through that. And it was all just carefully selected. And I'm finding myself pretty skeptical just 
trying to understand or believe that we're going to see change coming from within the NHL. Even the, if you go through the various defenses that were put forth in that presser, you know, explaining Joel Quenville that he'd already coached 867 games since 2010. It's almost like, what's one more? But the fact that that research was done to come up with that statistic, that prepared of a number, shows that it was sort of a canned response to me. And, you know, the idea, and we're going to get to it more, absolving Kevin Chevalier off who was in the room. He's an assistant GM, and he claimed that he only knew certain details of the investigation, which is strange considering he was in the room for these meetings. And when the question was put forward about comparing the Ilya Kovalchuk cap circumvention fine, which is $3 million, 11 years ago, forfeiture of draft picks, a greater punishment than what was given to the Chicago Blackhawks for their handling of the Kyle Beach situation. The response was different context, different facts. And then there also was the shrugging off of Sheldon Kennedy, who was the original trailblazer in terms of someone coming forward about sexual assault in the sport. The idea that because he wasn't an NHL player when it happened, that we're not going to get involved in this, which is crazy to not listen to what Sheldon Kennedy has to say or consider that his opinion has weight. If I just add all of those facts together, I'm having a hard time believing that even if the NHL claims it wants to be better, that it's going to be the organization to do it. I don't know if we're going to find help for survivors or a place for victims to come forward. I think we may have to look outside, but I'm going to ask you more about that first. What do you think needs to happen in terms of protecting uh, I don't want to say protecting against it happening because it's probably going to happen again. Sexual assault, it, it, it's not going away. It's sad. It's just the way of the world. But at least being more of a support system for a future Kyle Beach, what can be done? And, and is it going to be something that happens from within the NHL? Can we trust them? Well, you know, what I'd like to see is a, a department established, you know, much in the same vein of the Department of Player Safety. I mean, there was at one point that just didn't exist in the NHL until it was felt that, you know, a long time had been coming where they needed it. You know, and I think the important thing would be that in this department, sure, you have some some straight up hockey people, but then you have people completely outside of the culture. And, you know, whether they be doctors or lawyers or, you know, victims advocates, people who have worked in those spaces, I think it needs to be a combination. Now, I don't know who those people would be because that's not, you know, my, my turf. Um, but in terms of sort of hockey liaisons, you know, like, and Akeem Alou, for example, or, you know, Jen Botterill had some, you know, some very powerful words on Hockey Night in Canada on the weekend. Seems like she's pretty attuned with this. And I know, you know, with her father having a sports psychology background, clearly Jen Botterill has uh, some pretty good insight on, on that, si- that side as well. Um, you know, Brock McGillis is somebody that I know you've talked to a lot. Sheldon Kennedy, as you mentioned, would be somebody who played the game, you know, at the NHL level and, of course, went through traumas himself. So I think you know, what would be very interesting to see would be a department that would be there for the players and and not just the players, frankly, anybody who works in hockey. Um, I I suppose you would have to focus on the NHL because that's all you can really control if you're the NHL. But, you know, I would also say if if there was a junior player that needed some um, advice or guidance, you know, I would assume that this group would maybe be open to at least you know, hearing them out and steering them in the, the right direction. But to me, that would be a, a great step in the right direction is to establish not just a person within a department, but an actual department. Yeah, uh, I think I, I half agree with you. I think the idea of a department is really important, but I think it can exist within the NHL or have any official ties to the NHL. Kyle Beach said it uh, in the interview with Westhead last week that they need a third party 
resource for support that doesn't have skin in the game. And there's an idea that the NHL can act as a third party, but it does have skin in the game. When it's dealing with, in the, in the case of the, the 2010 playoffs, if the NHL had knowledge of the situation, it's still their Stanley Cup. And any team within the NHL that's getting negative press, it's still one of their commodities. It's still under the umbrella of the NHL. They do have skin in the game. And we know there is a crisis hotline that's been established, especially in light of what happened with Akeem Alou and when the revelations came forward in late 2019 about Bill Peters, we know there was the code of conduct established in the NHL. There was the hotline, the crisis hotline, where players could report abuse and achieve their anonymity or maintain their anonymity. But again, that's still under the umbrella of the NHL. So if it's being filtered through someone who works for the league and it's anything that could theoretically represent bad press for the league, you still have to worry that whoever's getting that information will be wondering about the interests of the company first or at least on equal footing to the person making the complaint. The only way to give the proper support and rights, I think, to the victim uh, is to have a completely separate body. So a great example, like you said, someone who can help major junior players as well, sure. Mm. Any independent body that helps survivors in any way but that does not have to answer to any major league, mm. I think is the, the only solution that I personally trust. It's sad to say, it's almost emotional to talk about, but it's how I feel. I don't think I don't think we can trust the, the powers that be, the, sort of the, the establishment at the moment because they've lost it. They've lost our trust and I don't see any signs yet of behavior that's gonna change the way we think. I think trust has to be earned back. Mm. And until we know we can trust the league to put the interests of survivors first, we have to look outside the league in my opinion. Yeah. Now, I, w I would say that at the least, I think the NHL should fund this uh, group. I think that's where I would see the positive step coming, where I, I understand what you're saying about, you know, would this group be beholden to the NHL? But I think the, the positive step would be for the NHL to say, okay, we're going to put, you know, we're going to put X amount of money towards this group and it'll be kind of a, uh, you know, a hands-off situation. Yeah, I think what I worry is that anything that the league is doing right now, you always have to ask yourself, is it going to be performative? And mm. if you look at something like the Executive Inclusion Council, which was established last year, unless unless I have my information wrong, I have not heard much about what they've worked on in the last year. It's sort of just kind of faded away. It's disappeared. And that was a pretty elaborate initiative. All these different departments that are dedicated toward inclusivity and with people from around the league, whether it's P.K. Subban or I think Megan Duggan was one of the people involved or Julie Chu. We haven't heard much about that. And when I see situations like that, I wonder again, was that just sort of performative, the idea of just establishing that they care without actually really putting things into action? And that's why I still worry that you'd have to operate separately. We did have a an interesting question from a former intern and also a listener, Ayush Dash. Uh, I wanted to bring it up now because it sort of applies more to what we're talking about now. And he made a really good point. He said, players have started to speak up, but no teams have showed support of Kyle Beach in an official way. And why is that? Why do we think that teams are not stepping up? Um, and, and he said, teams seem to be happy to put up a pride flag, but not to talk to advocates. They seem to value mental health, but silence Robin Lehner. How can fans get the league to be more accountable for their actions? I think what happens here, the reason why we're not seeing teams in an official way come forward is that they're still, they're, they still have owners, and the owners are still tied to Gary Bettman. Bettman represents the owner's interest, and I think they're all still tied together. They all still have skin in the game. So I'll be very surprised if you see another NHL franchise speak out in support of Beach and in turn is speaking out against another franchise. Mm. It's sad, but I just think that's the way it's going to be. Mm. So we also saw on Tuesday Kevin Chevalier and Mark Chipman spoke for the Winnipeg Jets. 
on Sheveldayoff's involvement and the fact that he is not being officially punished and will not be losing his job. Um, and I'm curious if, if you think their contrition, I guess would be the word, constitutes any progress. I'm a little skeptical. Uh, I know there was a lot of emotion, especially from Mark Chipman, and he was commended for it. I'm not ready to hand him a medal yet, but I'm, I'm, I want to see what you think first. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously there was a lot of emotion in that. And I think this is a pretty good case study in you know, how far people are willing to go because I, I think there's a lot of conflicting emotions when you come to um, you know, these people that are you know, at the top of the sports world where you know, it's like, okay, they feel bad, but what are they willing to do about it? Like, was Kevin Sheveldayoff willing to resign? Did, did he feel that bad? Well, clearly not. Because uh, he would have done so already. So, you know, they feel bad, but it's kind of outweighed by, you know, the situation that they're that they're in. And I mean, look, you know, people work very hard to get where they are. That's understandable. But I mean, if we're really talking about true contrition, then you have to do things that are uncomfortable for you, and you have to be willing to actually put yourself on the line. And I, I think that's something that we did not see um, with Winnipeg. And hey, you know, if you want to take Shovel Day offside, you can say, okay, well, he was a bit player and, and whatnot. But, you know, as Mike Stevens pointed out on uh, the Hockey News website in, in, in his blog, you know, the, the timeline for a lot of the things Shovel Day Off was talking about don't quite line up. So there are still questions out there. Um, so for me, this is, uh, this is a book that has not yet been closed, even though I'm sure the Jets would like to move on. Yeah, and you make a good point about, about Sheveldayoff there, because I know his claim is that he didn't know the depth of the accusations coming from Kyle Beach, that he was under, under the impression that it was more about harassment than actually an official assault being carried out. But I know that Kyle Beach's uh, lawyer, Susan Loggins, disputes that. And it, it is something that's a little bit hard to believe, just in the sense that if you're in the room, we know that Sheveldayoff was in the room for these meetings with other members of the Blackhawks brass. Why would he be the only one in the room that didn't have the same information? The pieces don't really fit together to me in the puzzle. I don't want to speculate too much, but I will say that it, it doesn't add up when you look at the facts that we know on paper. Uh, and as for Mark Chipman's statement, I, I found it a little bit icky seeing a lot of messages commending him. I think that was too quick of a reaction to something that for now is just words. I know he has a, represent, a reputation of being someone who's a mover and shaker. And the comment he said was, I commit to you today that I will use my influence within the National Hockey League to acknowledge that there are systemic problems that require systemic solutions. That sounds great. But let's see. Let's see what happens. Uh -huh. Let's see action first before we commend the words. For now, they're just words, in my opinion. So uh, we may be getting to some other issues in the next episode. There are a couple other prominent stories happening in the news cycle right now, but they're unresolved at the time that we're recording this podcast. So we're waiting on the NHLPA vote on whether to have an independent investigation on the PA's response to the B situation uh, 10, 11 years ago. So as of now, like the time we're recording this podcast, the, the, the vote's not in. So we'll save that topic for next time. Also, we know the lawsuit that has been uh, filed against the Penguins, Clark Donatelli, Mary Lemieux, Bill Guerin, Ron Burkle. The presser for that was supposed to be Tuesday. It's been delayed because a second accuser has come forward on top of Aaron Scully against Clark Donatelli. So again, that's still an ongoing situation. The presser could be starting while we're recording this, so we're going to wait. Uh, I just don't want anyone to think that we're ignoring these topics. They're right. just they're kind of in flux right now, so we'll keep them right. to the side just for now. 
So there is some hockey to talk about as well. Uh, it feels strange. I personally have had a hard time just kind of focusing on the game in a normal way, but it's still happening. It's it's out there right now, uh, and we should talk about it a little bit. So let's talk about Cole Caulfield. Mm. The Montreal Canadiens sent him to the AHL. He had one point in 10 games, one assist. Uh, I've seen a lot of conflicting debate on whether that's a risky thing to do. Could it shatter his confidence? Could it ruin him? They already ruined Jesperi Kakanyemi, and so on and so on. Where do you land on that? Do you think it's the right decision or wrong decision to send Cole Caulfield to the AHL? I think it was the right decision. And I think hopefully the Habs learned from Kakanyemi, who they held on to in the NHL way too long uh, before eventually sending him to Laval. With Caulfield, you know, Let's not forget, this time last year, he was still at the University of Wisconsin. And yes, he jumped into the NHL right away and made an impact, and he was fantastic in the playoffs. Uh, but that's when no one had a book on Cole Caulfield. Now everyone's expecting him to produce. And obviously, Montreal, you know, they're back to being the team they were before the playoffs began last year, uh, before, you know, the first sort of four games of the, the series against the Maple Leafs in the first round. So. He's not as protected as he once was in terms of having Carey Price in net, stopping basically every puck, having Shea Weber on the back end, making sure pucks don't get too Price. Um, you know, the, the thing here is if Caulfield's not scoring at this point in his career, he's not really doing much else. Um, you know, obviously he's not a big body. We all know that. Um, but, you know, in terms of his all-around game, that's going to be a work in progress as he goes along. So to send him down to the AHL, I think it's a great idea. Um, Montreal's probably going to continue to be pretty bad for the next little while. In Laval, you know, he's obviously going to have a, a big role. He had a big role in the Habs. So, you know, there's not a difference there. But just in terms of, you know, the competitions he's playing, he's probably going to light it up. But he's also going to be able to work on his all-around game. And I think that's important. And again, you know, development, it's a marathon, not a sprint. This is a, a small blip in what is probably going to be a very long and, uh, you know, prestigious career for Cole Caulfield. I like the move. I like that they did it early, mm -hmm. didn't drag it out, let the kid get his confidence back in Laval, let him pot a bunch of goals, and then you bring him back and hopefully your team's in a better situation uh, and, and hopefully he's in a better situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm with you. And even if you try to make the comparison to Jesperi Kakanyemi, I do think it's apples to oranges because... What ruined Kotkaniemi's confidence was not sending him down. It was putting him on the team when he was 18 years old. He was the youngest player in the NHL. And we know, everyone knows that the Habs, they drafted for positional need rather than best available in that 2018 draft when Brady Kachuk was there. They passed on him. And I think there was sort of a, a, a sense of rushing Kotkaniemi to prove, no, look, he made he went right to the NHL. Look, he's yeah. ready. He's ready. And that, if anything, is what ruined Kotkaniemi. He wasn't sent down until a year and a half into his career. Right, so it's not the same thing when Caulfield gets a cup of coffee last year, plays in the playoffs, and then after ten regular season games this year goes back down. And to me, a couple things I think contributed to it. Um, like you said, you know, there's no Carey Price, there's no Shea Weber. This is something that I said before the season that the Habs are going to have a harder time in terms of the, the Suzuki line without mm. Philip Deneau because yeah. we saw a preview of it in the Stanley Cup Final. When John Cooper had the ability to scheme away from the Dano line, he put his best line against the Suzuki line, and they really had their hands full. And now, even though you brought in Christian Dvorak, I know it's not quite the same as having Dano from a defensive standpoint. And I do think that it put a lot more pressure on the Suzuki line to 
have to do more at both ends of the ice. And like you said, that's not really what Caulfield does best. When you had the insulation of Deneau before, you could let that line kind of cook yeah. and score. Right now, I think with Caulfield, the best thing you can do is give him his puck touches, as they like to say. He's only playing 14 minutes a night in the NHL right now. You can just you can put him out there for 21 minutes a night if you want in the AHL and just let him get that confidence back. And like you said, when he came right from Wisconsin, he scored almost a goal per game last year. He lit it up as soon as he went to the AHL as well. And he sort of was already in a groove by the time he made the playoffs or went or went to the Habs and then joined them for the playoffs he had that swagger right now it's all being sort of reset to square one so yes you could argue is it embarrassing sure there was the photo I saw that he I think he made it in time for picture day in Laval which is like oh man that's that that sucks uh but I think in the long run it's the right decision because it's a bit of a tire fire right now in Montreal the situation they're just they've lost so many bodies from last year Mm. So the New York Rangers were in the news this week as well. They've re-signed the reigning Norris Trophy winner, Adam Fox, to a seven-year extension with a $9.5 million AAV. It is the highest ever for a defenseman coming out of an entry-level deal. Do you think it's worth it? Is he the real deal? Or are you part of the camp that thinks the analytics community has gone too far with Fox? Where do you sit? No, I definitely think Adam Fox is the real deal. I think this was a, a fantastic contract. I had actually mused... A few weeks ago on the website, you know, could Adam Fox be the first $10 million player we've seen uh, in quite a while? Didn't quite get there, but, uh, you know, it's seven years, not eight years. Uh, Maybe that played a factor. But, you know, what I like the most about Adam Fox is, you know, throughout the duration of this contract, you know, he's, you know, he's in his prime right now. He's going to continue to be in his prime for quite a while because, he is an elite talent, and I think what separates him from a lot of players is that his hockey IQ, his mind is so elite that, you know, it's it's not like a guy who has blazing skating that eventually the skating's going to slow down a bit. Mm-hmm. It's not like a guy who is a huge power forward that, you know, is going to get banged up and that's going to be a problem later on in the contract. Adam Fox is always going to be super smart. And, you know, the more he plays in the NHL, the more he's going to sort of, you know, suck in information wise and probably become even smarter. So, you know, for the Rangers, the Adam Fox they see now is probably going to be the Adam Fox they see five, six years from now. And it's funny because last year he was obviously fantastic and won the Norris Trophy. Uh, he's on a better points pace right now than he was last season. 11 points his first 10. So you're looking at a guy that is playing at like, I'm not a math major, but you know, basically an 86 to 90 point pace. Um, that's pretty good for a modern defenseman and a guy that can do a lot for you. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a total win for a contract. The only thing the Rangers and GM Chris Drury need to be concerned about now is I think they have about $10 million left for next year. Ryan Strom's a UFA. Uh, Alexander Georgiev needs a new contract. There's a couple of other guys like Sammy Blay and Capococco. Um, you have to be really cognizant of how you use that money because how you look down the middle behind Mika Zibanejad, whose own contract extension kicks in next season as well. So something to keep on the radar for New York fans is, you know, how does this contract uh, affect the rest of the team's depth? I I would have to assume that we're going to see a couple of moves from the Rangers, uh, you know, whether it's in the offseason or, you know, maybe even at the trade deadline, depending on where they are in the standings. Um, 
But, you know, something to keep in mind because, you know, Ryan Strobe at this point is going to cost you at least five, six million dollars mm-hmm. right there. So if you only got 10 and one player is taking up about 60 percent of it, how do you feel in the rest of those slots? Right. And it is a lot of money tied up for a core that hasn't been in the playoffs yet, unless you count the, the play-ins. Uh, but that said, I, I, I like the players that they've spent their money on. And I love the trend we're seeing. I feel like teams are smartening up and starting to understand the prime of an athlete more. I don't know whether yeah. that's because every team has an analytics department now, but especially if you use a case study, you compare the Adam Fox contract to the Seth Jones contract. Normally when people do that, I say, no, no, you can't do that. You can't compare someone coming, someone on his second contract to someone on his third contract who's going, who's getting paid for his UFA years. Obviously mm-hmm. he's going to get more money. It's different, but people are noticing the AAVs are the same, nine and a half, nine and a half. And I do think there's actually something didactic there you can really use to show the new trend. So Seth Jones is the old trend. It's paying the player for what he's already done. And that contract, he's 26 years old already. That's going to pay him deep into his thirties. Adam Fox is being paid for his prime. Mm. He's being paid for, yes, he's a Norris Trophy winner, but he's going to get $9.5 million a year for what's going to be the best years of his career. Mm. And that's the right way to do it. I think we're seeing a change now where teams are starting to commit large chunks of change to younger guys that are coming off their first contract. And it does involve a lot of projection, but I think it's a better investment than paying the guy who's 29. Okay, you've earned it. You've earned it, Eric Carlson. Here's your $11 million. Congratulations on what you've done. Here is your award contract. And now we will watch you decline for $11 million a year, 11 million plus. So to me, I I think we're showing something progressive here, the, the logic behind the contract. As for Fox himself, yes, he's very polarizing. And to me, he's currently the poster child for the debate, the analytics versus the old school debate, because he's not a big guy. And I think a lot of people can't believe he won the Norris Trophy last year in a non-playoff team. But if you really look, and shout out to to Jay Fresh, Jack Fraser, who does these really cool play, player cards, who and they and they he puts them on Twitter and they show an impact of a player in all situations at both ends of the ice. Fox is really impactful all over the ice. Mm. He has the tools of an offensive defenseman. He's a smaller guy who skates well. He's really smart, but he his impact on the defensive side of the puck is just as strong. And that's a hard thing for, I think, the eye test folk to process because they think of Fox as sort of a, a slick customer. Mm. So we, we've made references, passing references, uh, at the start of the season over the first month of the season to the Arizona Coyotes and their tank job. But I wanted to, to dig in a little deeper because I was looking right. closer and it actually, it's pretty remarkable just how brazen this is. We know they, <laughs> traded, they traded Dvorak, Christian Dvorak, for futures before the season started. If that doesn't signal... A shift to a rebuild and tanking mm. nothing does because you're literally right before the season saying we want nothing back that's going to be in the lineup right now right but you look closer they're oh nine and one they've been outscored in 10 games 42 to 13 they have a minus 29 goal differential after 10 games of the season their power play is operating at eight percent efficiency like this is next level tanking right. next level no wins in the first 10 games they're trying to challenge the Ottawa Senators of 92-93 or the Washington Capitals when they first came into the NHL in the 70s. It's just mind-blowing. So what I want to ask you is, when a tank job is this brazen, I think the most brazen tank job, I don't know if we've seen one this outright in a mm. long time. Do you think it's ethical? Does it any anything about it bother you or are you okay with it? Well, you know what? I have a feeling that you're going to unload on the Coyotes. So I'm going to, I'm going to play the... Uh, the angel on the shoulder here, I guess. Um, I, I have, or I guess it's more of a devil's advocate approach. Um, 
The way I look at it is you have a new GM coming in and Bill Armstrong. He brings in a new coach in Andre Tourney, uh, who I highly respect. I think Tourney was a great hire. Um, but Armstrong comes in and he is trying to rebuild an entire franchise and culture. You know, we've seen people uh, leave the Coyotes, and in, in, including people that were involved in that draft combine scouting scandal that cost them some picks. Um, so what I see is a GM who is literally tearing it down to the studs and rebuilding it in his own image, uh, or at least you know in the image that Bill Armstrong thinks will be successful in the future. So if you look at the Coyotes roster right now, they essentially have three players on long-term deals. Clayton Keller, Nick Schmaltz, and Jacob Chikrin. Um, you know, Chikrin obviously has been fantastic. Uh, Keller and Schmaltz, they've been okay, but you know, their contracts aren't like eye popping. So that's fine. Otherwise you have a ton of UFAs this year, uh, especially at forward where, you know, they're either going to prove themselves for another contract or you deal them at the deadline. They certainly have guys that can be those grinders and sort of energy guys or, and even sort of shut down defensive forwards. So you can get futures for that right now. Arizona is slated to pick 10 times within the first 100 picks of the 2022 draft, including three first rounders, five second rounders. So that's eight in the first two rounds. So this is a franchise that is obviously building something in sort of real time. And we haven't Mm -hmm. seen that very often. Usually when teams uh, are rebuilding, there's at least a couple of veterans that stick around. And, you know, they do have Phil Kessel, uh, but we also think that Phil Kessel will probably be moved because, I mean, he is a you know legit playoff scorer. He has been pretty much his whole career. He's a winner. You know, you'll get some good packages for uh, Phil Kessel. But is it a brazen tank? Yeah, sure, you can see it that way. Um, but I would also make the sort of devil's advocate argument that Bill Armstrong is doing what's best for this franchise because it needed a complete clean out. Mm-hmm. And that's what he is doing. Um, he's he's doing it during the season. Uh, a lot was done in the off season, but I think this is going to be a humongous summer for the Arizona Coyotes and the beginning of what Armstrong's vision is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's treating the franchise like it was full of asbestos. Totally. He's just gotten that thing. And I'm going to surprise you. I'm not going to disagree with you. Oh, I'm going to agree with you. Um, because, hey, they're cap compliant. What else can you do? There's nothing illegal about their roster. True. Yes, they're starting someone named Carl Vemelka in net, but he's playing well. 922 save yes, percentage he is. for Carl Vemelka. And this team's cap compliant. And the thing is, they, the NHL has created new rules that are, I guess, slightly going to deter teams from tanking starting in this draft, 2022. Mm. Uh, No single team, I'm quoting it because I'm reading it now, no single team will be able to advance in the draft order by reason of winning a lottery draw more than two times in any five-year period. Okay, it's not like the Coyotes have done so. They weren't even allowed to pick in the first round for a couple (laughs) years. They traded to get one pick back, but they had those picks taken away as punishment, right, for the recruiting scandal. So it's not like they've gotten to dip into the lottery pool yet and grab those top picks. They need to continue to bottom out first in hopes of going after Shane Wright or Connor Bedard. We've talked again and again about how stacked both those draft classes are going to be. It's mm. not just those two. Both both years have lots of great talent. Yeah. Uh, so I, I get it. And 
I don't think it's a situation where you can get upset. It's not like when the Edmonton Oilers picked first overall, what whatever it was, four times in six years or whatever it was, because the Coyotes they have not been at the top of the draft. So they've got to start. They're still in the early phase of it, so I kind of understand uh, why they have to gut the team this way. And, and honestly, I don't know why, but I kind of think it's funny. Yeah. I, I just... I. To me, it's like, if you're going to do it, just do it. Yeah. So seeing them that, it's like, I, I, when I look at the standings and just how bad they are, I, I almost want them to break a record now. I'm <laughs> right. cheering for them. Just right. to, if you're going to be bad, be bad in be an the interesting. Worst. Yeah, make it an interesting. Yeah. Be bad in a spectacular way. Be Detroit be Lions immortal. bad. Yeah. yeah. Like, I still know the leading scorer of the 92-93 Ottawa Senators, Norm McIver, nice. starting goaltender, Peter Sidorkovich. Yes. That team has a sort of weird immortality because they were so bad, they were legendarily bad. So, Coyotes, I'm rooting for you to continue losing. Uh, we got some listener questions. This one is from Jay Kaplan. Jay wants to know, will Zdeno Chara make it through the season with the Islanders? The team has already broken up the Pelik Pulik line in order to give him more support. I've seen a lot of Islanders fans already wanting to see him bench for Sebastian Naho. I wonder what your take is. It's a really good question, Jay, because uh, it has not been good for Zdeno Chara. So he's playing 18 minutes a game. And with Chara on the ice at 5-on-5, five five, the stingy Underbury Trots, New York Islanders, outshot 73-44 to 44 with Chara on the ice, outscored 7-4, Outchanced 64 to 35. High danger chances doubled up 26 to 13. So, like, there's no way around it. It's been really bad for Chara. Um, of course, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, but he's 44 years old. The only other defenseman to play in the NHL at his age or older are Doug Harvey and Chris Chelios, also Hall of Famers. It's legendary, but even for the greatest of the greatest, you can fall off a cliff at any point. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if that is what we're witnessing right now Chara falling off a cliff. And the tough thing for someone of Chara's stature, metaphorical but also physical, um, you can't bench Zdeno Chara. You can't have him hanging out in the press box. You can't hide six foot nine Zdeno Chara in the press box. Yeah. That'll be a, a story in and of itself. So if it gets to that point, I do think you could see Zdeno Chara walk away and retire in, in the middle of the season. Uh, but what do you think? Do you think that Chara can turn this around, or is this the beginning of the end? Well, you know, it's probably the beginning of the end, given his age and, you know, the fact that he's, you know, he's not fleet of foot. He never really has been. Um, you know, I still think that he can be a depth piece for the Islanders. But, you know, I, I can certainly see a situation where, yeah, you know, he probably does need to take uh, a bit of time off, you know, call it load management, call it what you will. But I mean, the Islanders are going to do what's best for their team. I mean, this is a this is a franchise that has Barry Trotz and Lou Lamorello running it. They're not going to be caught up in sentiment um, because they know that Char is a professional as well, and he'll understand if he can't make contributions every night then, you know, he's going to have to step, you know, to the side a bit. And, you know, when it comes to the playoffs, this is a New York team that has made a couple of really nice runs lately. I'm sure they expect to make another one. You're going to need depth. You're going to need all hands on deck. Maybe Chara's not helping right now, but a guy with that kind of size and reach, come playoffs when things get tighter, uh, you know, when offense comes is harder to come by, that's a guy that on the penalty kill can take away half the rink still. So he would still have some value. And I think that's sort of the message that you give him is, look, we know you're not the same guy you were 10, 15 years ago, but we still think in you know small spurts, you can be helpful. We want you to be prepared for those minutes when they're available to you. 
Yeah, it's a good point. I, I do see him as someone who can do a lot more or get away with a lot more uh, with the officials putting their whistles away in the playoffs. Whether that's fair or not, it's just the way that it tends to happen. Uh, next question is from Watkins Hamilton. What a name. I feel like he sounds like a Formula One driver or that mm-hmm. he should be Watkins Hamilton the third, and he's just won the U.S. Amateur Golf Tournament or something. What a name. Wow, Watkins Hamilton. Watkins wants to know. What is your favorite issue of THN that you've ever been a part of? Really fun question. Um, I thought about it, and for me, the answer is it's a special edition we released a couple years ago called The Greatest Games. And that entire magazine is oral histories. And from an interviewer Uh, standpoint, yeah, oral histories are so much fun to do because... It's typically you're typically talking about a very famous thing that happened. It's usually an anniversary of it, or you're talking. It's something that happened a while back. So all the parties involved are usually a lot more comfortable talking about what happened because it's because many years have passed. So you end up having a lot of fun doing the interviews. Mm. And for that magazine, I did three oral histories. I did the Miracle on Ice, and even though team the Soviets they decided they did not want to participate, but I got all the main people from the Miracle on Ice, obviously not Herb Brooks, but everyone else involved, Craig Patrick and Mike Ruzioni, Jim Craig, all of those guys. And it was so fun talking to them, learning all the different stories about that team. Uh, I also did the 1979 Too Many Men on the Ice Habs-Bruins game, mm. which was, a, which was that, that one was so fun to do. I got lots of players from the Bruins and Habs. And I remember talking to Rajon Uhl about the goal that Yvonne Lambert score, scored in overtime. And I was like, do you remember what you said when it happened? He paused. He went, yeah, yeah, I remember. Ah! Ah! Yeah! Ah! And he just screamed on the phone, like acted out exactly what he did. I was like, oh, my God. And he was like laughing his head off. Yeah. Uh, and then I did the, the 94 Mark Messier guarantee game, which was a lot of fun to recount as well. Mm. Uh, and there were some cool, like, conflicting stories there in terms of how it played out. And uh, I even talked to one of the, the, the journalists, I think the journalist who first broke that story. Uh, so... Long story short, as you can tell, because I'm kind of rambling about it, I had so much fun doing that one. Just oral histories are always a blast. So my answer is the greatest games. Nice. You know, it's funny. I'm going to go with one of our special issues as well. And it was uh, greatest jerseys of all time. This is one that it's it's difficult to find because... My favorite issue. Yeah, it went off the shelves quick. Uh, yeah. And you know, we had some really cool... Uh, photo shoots that we did with like Hall of Fame sweaters and so you had like the St. Louis Eagles in there and like the Trail Smoke Eaters and there was an international section and you know we traced uh, a history of the jersey which is why when I get in debates with people about whether you should say sweater or jersey I say no it's like you know they used to wear sweaters because they were literally sweaters. Yeah. Then they switched to during in like the 60s. They've been jerseys for a long time. Totally different material, totally different makeup. Yeah. But I digress on that. Yeah, so uh, greatest jerseys. Uh, the goalie masks special issue was awesome as well. That looked great. And one more I'm going to point out is one year we did a playoff preview where I had an idea for the cover where, you know, one of my favorite movies is The Warriors. The 1979 gang movie that was sort of ahead of its time. It was kind of comic book style where all the gangs in New York have themes for some reason and they have a conference. Um, But I was like, what if we got an artist to draw NHLers like they were in the Warriors? So that year it was like Brad Richards, Mm -hmm. Tim Thomas, and I can't remember who the third person was. Uh, Maybe Joe Thornton? I don't remember. Yeah, I forget. Um, But anyways, we had an artist do them as if they were in Warriors gangs. And then like we did the font. And uh, to me, that was super fun to see an idea like that actually get made. 
um, was very rewarding. So I still yeah. have that issue. At That's home. a really good one too. I just want to add something to the goalie one. Mm-hmm. The, I, I, I thought that was one of the coolest magazines that were masks. So I wanted to make my own because there was like a story on how goalie masks were made in the beginning. Oh. So like I had like my dad and I tried to mold something to my face <laughs> and it didn't work. So we ended up just taking like, like aluminum foil and we made this thing that kind of molded my face for a uh, mini stick. First shot, hit me in the face, but I bent the whole thing. <laughs> well, aluminum foil, wouldn't that scratch up your face too? Like uh, aluminum we, foil gets sharp. We put like a, like a plastic like layer, we put a layer around it where it was kind of soft. Okay. Gotcha. I'm okay. glad it was well thought out. The the other uh, the other magazine I really enjoyed doing it was during the 2012-13 lockout. So we were scrambling for content, and, mm-hmm. and it was called Life After Hockey. I feel like I brought it up for some reason on a recent podcast, but it was one of my favorite assignments where it was like you had to just be a detective. That's why I mentioned it because I've talked about wanting to be a detective. Right. But it was where you just where at the, at the time our editor in chief Jason K he just gave us a name of like a player that was retired or like missing, and you just mm. had to find them. Right. Like, do your best. Find out find out what happened to so and so. Yeah. And. Write a story on them, which is a really fun assignment. Okay, we're going to switch to the rapid fire game now. Uh, I am the host. Are you ready for Let's rapid do it. fire? Okay. So, Halloween is now behind us. Uh, yes. I don't know about you, but in my neighborhood, there was a big comeback. A lot of trick or treaters this year. Mm-hmm. So, I'm curious for you, what is the age cutoff for giving out candy in terms of how old a kid can be before you're like, ah, come on, come on? You're a kid with no costume. Are you one of those people that will turn away a kid once they're past a certain age? Uh, you know what? I am not because I think there's something very punk rock about Halloween. So even if you're a teenager and you're just going around, it's like, yeah, I'm going to reward the effort that you're going door to door asking for candy. So I, I, I'm going to say uh, no cutoff for uh, teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say I, I put down 16. So, you know, mid-teens, I think mm-hmm. I'm still cool with. If you're like a, a grown man, just be like, hey, can I have some candy? That might be a little strange. Yes. But uh, I agree. Like, I'm okay with kids like fairly deep in high school. And shout out to my sister. My sister is only like five foot one. So in high school, when she was like 18, like senior year of high school, she just like put a T-Rex head on her on her body and <laughs> wandered the neighborhood, did, did a full trick or treat because people nice. thought she was a kid. Nice. Okay. Next question. What is... The most extravagant piece of hockey equipment you have ever owned. Ooh, okay. So I would say that a couple of years into my very undistinguished minor hockey career, uh, my dad got me like new shoulder pads that were like RoboCop style. And he was like, don't worry, you will not get hurt with these. Just do whatever. And uh yeah, they were like big ones. And I do remember taking down Meadowvale's biggest player in a house league game. Um, and then he tripped me afterwards, which I thought, it's like, you're, dude, you're like six foot at the age of 12. <laughs> like, you're tripping me? Come on. Uh, but yeah, those were like, that, that was like the best piece of equipment I had were those shoulder pads. Okay, that's good. I, I had the Robocop. I had these weird album ones that were like spikes. It's like, what are these for other than like... Yeah, they don't let you use those no more. Penalties. Yeah, like, like if, I, if I had sat like this with my elbows on the table, I'd be like this high off the table. It was wow. bizarre. But I'd say my most... Like the piece I was most excited about was I got had these skates in the mid '90s. They were like I think they were Bauer Supreme. The bottom was like all blue, and they were Pavel Bure skates. Because so I was always like a used skates guy, except one time played against sports. Yeah, I was always played against sports guy. But one time I I went all out and got the, the fancy skates. Nice. Okay, what is the best cover song of all time? Oh, see, this is a fantastic question because I believe cover songs are like the Rosetta Stone of music. So you can go a lot of different ways with this one. Um, But I'm going to keep it. 
You know, I'm going to keep it punk rock. Uh, Minor Threat doing Stepping Stone uh, by, I guess, the Monkees. Because, again, it's like when you hear a cover song, it's like, you know, the original. And it's like, okay, this is a new we we got a new genre here. Um, So this is what the genre is all about. I would also say, too, um, like Jimi Hendrix doing All Along the Watchtower. Yeah. Like, that's not, I don't even think of that as a Bob Dylan song. That's a Jimi Hendrix song. So, uh, uh, yeah, but uh, Minor Threat's one of my favorite bands. So I'm going to say Minor Threat. Well, it's funny you mentioned Jimi Hendrix because that's sort of my main criterion. It's like if the if the cover takes on such a life of its own that it's more famous than the original song, mm. I think that makes the cover immortal. So yes. I had a few. I put down Johnny Cash, Hurt, covering Nine Inch Nails. This is a great one. Fantastic. Jeff Buckley doing Hallelujah. I think that's the version I hear more than Leonard Cohen. Mm. And I think one that people forget about is... Killing Me Softly by the Fugees, covering Roberta Flack. True, Right? And that, to me, like, I can barely hear the Roberta Flack version. I think it's all Mm. Lauren Hill now. Actually, one more that I thought of. uh, There was an Australian band called Frente that covered New Order's Bizarre Love Triangle, but they did it acoustic and uh, and very slow. And their singer, she had, like, a very nice, quiet voice. So it's uh, it's very good in its own way. It's not going to replace the New Order version, but that's a that's an example of somebody going totally the other direction. I need and to that hear that because just there's a lot of like there's so many notes of like the, yeah. the organ in the original. Like, yeah, totally stripped down. Wow. Okay. Cool. Uh, what is a complaint in the sport right now? I'm talking more on ice, something that happens okay. in games that you're tired of hearing. Tired of hearing. Hmm. Oh well. I always look at like, you know, I I guess it's like fans always yelling, shoot. That's something that just kills me because it's like these guys know what they're doing out there. They know about lanes and angles. It's like, just shut up. Like, they know what they're doing. Okay. I'm going to say goalie interference. The whole idea, nobody knows what goalie interference is anymore. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I I do. It's pretty (laughs) easy. It's if the player banged into the goalie and touched him in a way that directly prevented the goal from going in. That's goalie interference. If a defenseman on the goalie's team clearly pushed the player into the goalie, it's not. It's easy. I don't know what the big problem is. You see, no, goalie interference is an epidemic. No one knows what it is. Like, it's right there. It's pretty simple. <laughs> um, when, What year do the, do the Arizona Coyotes make the playoffs next? Mm, okay, I'm going to say it's going to be three seasons from now. So that would be like Shane Wright's third year in the league and Connor Bedard's second year in the league. Okay, I think I'm going to say the same because that's three. That would be 2024, 20, 25. Sure. So I'm going to say the same year, actually. Okay, last category. I've been sitting on this one for a week because I, I wanted to come up with a big counterpunch to your IKEA game last week. Nice. So I've created a similar game. All okay? right. This game is Good. called You Must Guess Whether This Is the Title of a Crappy Bruce Willis Movie That Went Directly to Streaming nice. or If I Made Up the Title. Of the okay, movie. okay. I like okay? this. All right, good. Number one Blood Feud. I'm going to say you made that up because that was a book I edited. Correct. Eh. Movie number two, Acts of Violence. That sounds straight to video to me. Correct. That is a Bruce Willis movie. Nice. Number two, or number three, Precious Cargo. Ooh. You know what? I'm going to say you made that one up because it doesn't have enough masculine punch. So you know what's funny? This one is a Bruce Willis movie. But as I was creating the clues, I even forgot. I was like, oh, I made that up. And I looked up his IMDb. I was like, wait, I didn't. This is a Bruce Willis movie called Precious Cargo. Next up, Bone to Pick. 
You know what? I'm going to say that you made this one up because it does sound straight to video. So I, I think that that's a little reverse psychology. All right, correct. So you're three for four. Number five, Trauma Center. I'm going to say that's a real one. Correct. You nice. are four for five. And lastly, Cosmic Sin. Cosmic Sin. I'm going to say, man, that's like, that's almost so bad that it's hard to make up. But I'm still going to say, I'm going to say that's made up. Cosmic Sin is not made up. Ah, it's also nice. a Bruce Willis movie, but I, still four to six. That's I don't want to see that one. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good, though. You did better than I did on Ikea, so I commend you for it. Nice. And that concludes the Hockey News Podcast for this week. We'll be back next week. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening.